0: The text for our sermon this morning comes from 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26. We'll read selections from the three chapters. From chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Enjedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road, and where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, "'This is the day of which the Lord said to you, "'Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands, that you may do to him as seems good to you.' And David arose.' And secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David also rose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. For I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord, let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. From chapter 25. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten Young men, And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel to go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel, ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes while we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. And then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, "'On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be, "'and please let your maidservant speak in your ears "'and hear the words of your maidservant. "'Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, "'for as his name is, so is he. "'Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. "'But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. "'Now therefore, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives,' Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. And finally, from chapter 26, so David and Abishai came to the people by night and their Saul, their Saul lay sleeping with within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head and Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth and I will not have to strike a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed." And indeed, as your life was much valued in my eyes this day, so let my life be much valued in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. Well, today we've read three stories, but they are very much alike, and they teach us the same lesson. You know, when something is important, our teachers repeat it a lot. So that we remember. God put these three stories in the Bible, all three in a row, because it's important that we learn this lesson. In the first story, David had a chance to kill Saul. Now this would mean that Saul was no longer going to be chasing David all over the place trying to kill him. But it would also mean that David had not waited for God to remove Saul as king. If David killed Saul so that he could become king... Then anyone who didn't like David could say, well, David killed Saul. Why can't I kill David and make myself king? David didn't kill Saul, but he did cut off the corner of Saul's coat. And after he did it, he instantly felt bad. He knew that what he had done was wrong. And that's a very good thing, you know. This is what we call conscience. Can you say conscience? Yeah, conscience. Your conscience is is that thing in you that makes you feel bad when you've done something wrong. And God put this in us to help us stay away from sin. David's conscience bothered him, and he knew that he had to do the right thing. So he apologized to Saul. God helped David to not get even with Saul, and The Bible teaches us that when people do bad things to us or say bad things to us or about us, that we should be like Jesus and not try to get even. In the second story, a man named Nabal is very rude and mean to David's men. So David decides to get even. Only this time he's going to go far beyond just getting even. He plans to kill Nabal and all of his sons. But God stops David from doing this. How? Well, Nabal's wife finds out how rude her husband had been, and while he's asleep, she takes a bunch of food and presents to David and his soldiers. And she tells David that if he kills Nabal, then he will be sinning the sin of getting revenge or getting even. He must let God do that. David is very thankful that God sent this woman because first she gave food and supplies for him and his men, and she also gave him some very good advice. God protected David, again, from the sin of getting even. And then in the third story, David actually sneaks into Saul's army camp while Saul and his soldiers are all asleep at night. And David takes Saul's spear and his canteen, his water bottle. He's not trying to get even, you see. He is trying to show Saul and everyone else that he is not planning to harm Saul at all. Saul may say and do a lot of bad things to David, but David will not try to get even. He will let God defend him. God wants us, his children, to learn to be like Jesus. But we can't learn unless we get tested. How does your teacher know if you've learned the lessons that she's taught you? She gives you a test, right? In the same way, we cannot learn to be like Jesus, like to be kind to those who are mean to us, to be willing to let God defend us instead of trying to get even. We cannot learn that unless we have tests. When a teacher wants to know if you're learning what some words mean, she gives you a test with those words. When God wants to know if you're learning to be like Jesus, he gives you the kind of test that Jesus had. Tests where people are mean or say bad things to you or about you. And you have to learn to do the right thing and not get mad or get even or be mean back. Now, Of course, this doesn't mean that we stand by quietly while someone is mean to others we must speak out against wrong. But when someone does wrong to us, then we must be like Jesus and patiently wait for God to defend us in any way that he sees to be right. And this is an important lesson, and so I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon. We'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, Speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake. Amen. This morning, we're covering a lot of ground, as you can see, and that's because these are three similar cases. So that's our outline, number one, David spares Saul. Number two, David spares Nabal. And number three, David spares Saul again. We're going to look at these three incidents and consider them as the Bible presents them, and then we'll look at the proper moral application of the doctrines these incidents teach, which incidentally means we'll be refuting improper moral application. In the first case, David spares Saul. In this first account, Saul takes an army of 3,000 men into the wilderness of Gedi to hunt down David. David and some of his men are hiding in a place in a cave called the Rocks of the Wild Goats. Out of the Badlands, there are a lot of those bighorn sheep and you frequently see them walking around on rocky outcroppings that you wouldn't dare climb. Imagine a place like that. And then within all these jagged rocks, there are many clefts and caves and David is in one of these caves. He and his men have gone deep into the recesses of the cave to avoid detection. You know, one of the features of scripture that demonstrates its authenticity is the kinds of details it includes. It includes. Saul happens to be right at the mouth of that very cave when he feels the call of nature. So he goes in to relieve himself. If the Bible were just a bunch of made-up stories, it wouldn't include the record of a king going into a cave for a bowel movement. While Saul is in that cave, Saul removes his armor and his robe to do his business. And one of David's men says to him, This is your chance. God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Well, emboldened by these words, David approaches. But instead of killing Saul, he merely cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. And as soon as he does it, his conscience begins to trouble him greatly. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and wager that no one here finds anything especially objectionable in what David did. And it is therefore very hard for us to enter into this situation and see what David sees. David's conscience is so disturbed that he actually says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him. Now these three incidents, of course, teach us the Christian virtue of turning the other cheek or of leaving revenge in God's hands. But they are far more than that. These are ecclesiastical situations. You see, we have to remember and understand that the king of Israel was a visible type of Christ, the king of the church. And so this transition of power from Saul to David was an especially sacred thing. And the only way that it could be seen to be purely God's work is if David was absolutely hands-off. This transition of power, in many ways, was a church split. But it wasn't a split caused by schismatics. God caused it. God was restoring the purity of his church. And that's why David's conscience bothered him. He understood that to lift a finger against Saul was to take God's work in his own hands. To whatever extent... David meddled in this transition to that same extent he could be legitimately criticized. The more he left things in God's hands, the purer God's work would appear in the eyes of the people. David's conscience bothered him so much that he had to set the situation right. Now I want you to think about that and understand just how profound this is. David's life is in real danger. Saul fully intends to kill him. But David would rather face the wrath of man than to offend against God. David puts himself in open danger in order to clear his conscience before God. Now, obviously, there's also a very practical aspect to David's actions. If he lifts his hand against Saul in order to get the throne, then he's essentially telling everyone that that's okay. His own rule will be in danger. He can't complain if someone does to him what he's done to Saul. And it's not that David is just really clever. This is God's grace working in him in order to present us with a picture of, of Christ's humility. Earlier we read Philippians 2. In verses 5 through 7, we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. David's behavior here is a foreshadowing of Christ's humility. Think about it. Christ is God. There's no humility in in submitting to a superior. If a rank and file soldier takes an order from a general, that's not humility. That's not humble of him. But when a general gets down in the dirt and mud with the privates and works alongside them, that's humility. It was humility in Christ to suffer the hatred of his killers because it was in his power to do otherwise. And now we come to the second incident, the David spares Nabal. Now, while David and his men were in the wilderness, they kept themselves busy by protecting the livestock of nearby farmers. And one such farmer was a man named Nabal. I don't know what his parents were thinking when they named him, but Nabal is the Hebrew word for folly. And folly is a Hebrew synonym for sin. Because righteousness is true wisdom. Well, at any rate, Nabal was shearing his sheep, and at shearing time, it was customary to have a big feast. And so David sent some men at this time to ask Nabal for provisions for him and his men. You have to understand that in the ancient Near East, a very high premium was placed on hospitality. It was nearly unforgivable disrespect to refuse hospitality, especially from one who had done you an important service. Nabal bluntly tells David's men to beat him. And when they tell David, he gets angry and decides that they must attack and destroy his whole household. Now, there's something in this passage that is much more noticeable in the Hebrew. The King James does give us some indication. And I figure I'm going to say enough controversial things in this sermon. One more ain't going to hurt. David uses language in this incident that I'd have to characterize as... Profanity. And he does so repeatedly. Most of our modern English translations have him saying something like, I'm going to kill all the males in Nabal's household. What he literally says in Hebrew is, I'm going to kill everyone who urinates standing up. Now, obviously, that means men, but until this point, if David meant men, he simply said men. Now he's using the rowdy language of soldiers, cussing like a sailor, if you will. Nabal's wife finds out what has happened and she prepares a bunch of food and hurries out to meet David and his men with these supplies. And the profound spiritual woman of uh, wisdom of this woman, Abigail, is astounding. Briefly stated, she acknowledges that God has anointed David as king. She also believes that God has let her become aware of her husband's violation of etiquette in order to derail David from a dangerous path. He is heading straight into a very destructive sin. And there is a very great lesson for us here. David has just shown amazing humility and obedience to God in his encounter with Saul. And right on the heels of this great victory of Christian character, he's about to make shipwreck of his profession of faith. It's the exact same scenario, that of personal insult or injury. And while he was victorious by God's grace under these same circumstances when dealing with Saul, he is in real danger of blowing it with what will one day be one of his subjects. Here he most needs to be like Christ who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Abigail essentially tells David, if you do this, your name will be forever tarnished. You will forever be seen as a petty tyrant, just like Saul, who abuses his power to get even. You are to be the holy king over God's people. And God has let me know what my husband did so that I could hopefully stop you from what you're planning to do. And praise God, David's sin is arrested. He does see the evil in what he intends to do. And it's almost as if God gives him a second chance with Saul in chapter 26 in order to show him and show us that David had truly repented. And that brings us to the third incident. Now, this one is decidedly different from the first incident. This time, David and a couple of his men sneak into Saul's camp at night while everyone is asleep. And David takes Saul's spear and canteen. David doesn't feel guilty this time. And that's because his time was different. He's still goaded by his men to kill Saul, like the first time, and like the first time, he rebukes them. But this time, he's simply proving that he means no harm to Saul. The first time, it would appear that he did mean harm, and God prevented him from doing it. And his conscience convicted him of his intentions. This time, his intentions are pure, I want Saul to see that I waltzed right into his camp among his entire army while they were all asleep, and I harmed no one. And I only took the spear and canteen as physical proof that I had, in fact, been there. Once it's light, David climbs up onto a rocky ledge overlooking Saul's camp, and he yells out at Abner, the general of the army, and reproves him for not guarding the king. But what he really wants... It's just that Saul will, and everyone else, will know that he is not a threat. If he was, then he wasted the best opportunity he could have ever wished for. He asks for Saul to send over a private to retrieve the spear and canteen, which Saul does. And Saul appears to show some remorse. He actually weeps and acknowledges David's anointing. And he vows to leave him alone from now on. And he actually marches everyone back home. In this incident, we see more markedly than in the first, the Christian virtue of not seeking revenge, of turning the other cheek. God does not change. The moral law of God does not change. What we consider Christian ethics is the same ethic of the Old Testament church. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But this is hardly a New Testament virtue in opposition to the doctrine of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, God declares, vengeance is mine. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 24, verse 19, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. And that brings us to the moral application. David's example, and these verses that we've just cited, teach us the Christian virtue of forbearance. But this is not public policy or foreign policy. And the inability to see the difference has destroyed this nation and all of the once great Christian nations of Europe. We we may admire the work ethic of our Anabaptist neighbors, but their pacifism is sinful. It is completely misguided piety. In fact, it isn't piety at all. It's mere pietism. You don't fulfill the sixth commandment by letting invaders kill your women and children. And therefore, when evil is making bold incursions into your community and you stand by with spineless mottos about inclusion, acceptance, tolerance, and diversity, you might as well be pulling the trigger yourself. You don't fulfill the sixth commandment by violating it. American Christians have drunk, long drunk, of the poisoned well of pietism. We have confused the categories. And it affects everything, it affects preaching. It's a lot more fun to focus on the far away than the up close. We want our ministers to speak out against national or even international evils, but few want him to speak out against the evils on Main Street. Washington, D.C. is a den of vice and degeneracy. Okay, fine. Now let's ask how much vice and degeneracy occurs right here in Hutchison County or in Tripp. It's a lot easier to decry wickedness of a nation because you can feel distant from that. You can't feel distant from your own household. You'll complain about politicians or movie stars committing evil, but happily bear a grudge against your own neighbor, brother, or cousin for 40 or 50 years. Let's push this a little more. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Does not mean that I disadvantage My own family, kin, and community in order to show charity to total strangers. That's a great flaw in American evangelicalism. People sleep soundly at night because they've sent a check off to Compassion International to feed the children of Ethiopia while there are children in their own towns going to bed hungry. John says, How can you love God whom you can't see when you don't love your brother that you can see? And similarly, loving a so-called neighbor whom you cannot see nor will you ever see cannot be a substitute for loving the neighbor that you can see many churches do the same thing spiritually I'm a church kid and I've watched a couple generations grow up in the church and walk away and the church's philosophy has largely continued to be one that seeks to replace the lost children with new adult converts whose own children are just as likely to grow up and walk away The covenant standing of the children of believers was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. So this is a subject that I have read widely on. I have had far too many church friends from my childhood turn away from the faith of their parents because their spiritual life was neglected in the home. There was no church in the home and God has justly shown his anger to these families who did not call upon his name. It is a false dichotomy that pits outreach to the unsaved against attentiveness in the upbringing of those already in our care. I've seen the souls of far too many church kids sacrificed on the altar of outreach. Now, in days past, it was not uncommon to have fifth and sixth generation members in our churches. This isn't something that we hear of much anymore, outside of little homogenous communities like ours. And instead of treasuring and valuing what we have, the predominant philosophy of the world in much of the church would have us be ashamed of this fact. What has always been normal is now to be ridiculed as some bigoted evil attitude of a shameful past. A hundred years ago, when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, part of their intentionally anti-Christian propaganda was the dogma that Showing partiality to your family, your kin, and nation equaled hatred and oppression of outsiders. Now that's nonsense, of course, and we all know that. But this unpardonable, albeit previously non-existent sin, they called racism, it wasn't Christian theologians who taught us this. And I think that should be obvious because what other Christian moral virtue is there that everyone, including Christ-killing Hollywood, accepts and teaches without question? Christianity forbids fornication, adultery, sodomy, pornography, blaspheming God, murder, and theft. Now do we find all men, including and especially the entertainment industry, and the political machine in agreement with God on these issues? No, absolutely not. In most of the major cities of our country, the justice system won't even prosecute these crimes anymore. The more lurid of these sins are the heart and soul of liberal politics and the contents of 99% of entertainment, whether books, magazines, TV, movies, or music. This means that the church... Has adopted the world standard of morality in order to condemn something that God's law doesn't. Scripture labels that calling good evil. And we shouldn't object with something like love thy neighbor because my neighbor lives 20 yards away from me. It isn't love to your neighbor to place his interests in subjection to those with whom you share nothing meaningful. Now, obviously, loving my family and next door neighbor does not necessitate hating anyone else that's a lazy objection and until very recently neighbors by definition were usually part of your extended family this thing that we have here in our community where most of you are related by blood or marriage that's what all christian societies once looked like and i'm sure most of you can remember that now what i just said which anyone who is awake recognizes as truth is slandered by the world and the false church as bigotry. Now, I'm going to tell you something very shocking. In 1991, a Milwaukee man named Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. Between 1978 and 1991, he kidnapped, molested, killed, and ate 17 boys and young men. The majority of his victims were black. And when he was on trial, Dahmer went out of his way to convince the court that he was not a bigot. Now, do you understand what I'm getting at? He was far more afraid of being considered a bigot than he was of being known to be a kidnapping, murdering, sodomite cannibal. The world is like an M.C. Escher painting. Now, why would I risk my reputation talking about something so dangerous? Here's the reason why. Christians have become terrified of being called names. And as a result, we have let the hordes of hell wreak havoc on our Christian communities. Let fly the words racist, Christian, nationalist, anti-Semite, homophobe, bigot, and discussion is over. And it does not matter one whit how good your arguments are how moral your case is, how biblically faithful you are in your position, you had better just shut up so that you don't get called one of the bad names. We are scared speechless by things that are supposed to serve us. Let me give you some examples. TV and movies are supposed to be a momentary getaway from the drudgery of a hard day's work. Reasonably, then, they should serve us in our interests. But has that ever really been the case? No, not really. Even in the silent movie days of the teens and 20s, movies were constantly trying to push the envelope and normalize degeneracy by making it fun. The same goes for TV. We all look back with fond memories of the good old days of Leave it to Beaver. But the good of those shows wasn't that they promoted the Christian faith. They just didn't openly attack it. There were casual references to God or to church, but there was no meaningful promotion of the Christian faith. The same goes for politics. We call our, official, our elected officials representatives. Now, by any metric, that word is supposed to mean that they're chosen because they align with our values. Now, if that were the case, most of us wouldn't absolutely loathe the entire system. For most of my adult life, I haven't found politicians that realistically represented my interests as a Christian, or even as a straight male. And this is where all those unpleasant statements earlier come into play. The very idea that you or I, as upstanding Christians whose ancestors built our community, should have any real representation in our own government is considered hate, loving your neighbor and your family is considered hate that must be publicly shamed and punished. And this has happened because we have not distinguished what Scripture distinguishes. We have turned the morality that applies to grudges and personal one-on-one interactions, and we've made that about public policy or foreign policy. And in doing so, we have actually violated God's law as it relates to those to whom it actually refers. Loving my neighbor doesn't mean letting a home invader molest and murder my wife and children. Now, do I revel in the thought of using deadly force to stop someone? From violating the sixth commandment? Absolutely not. I pray the day never comes. But to play the coward when it does come by feigned piety makes me guilty of murder as much as the actual assassin. Psalm 50 verse 18 says, When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have become partaker with adulterers. Now the point of that passage is that when we hold our peace... As God's law is violated, we become partakers of that same sin. Our catechism teaches us this plainly in reference to the third commandment. There we are taught that we are not only, that not only are we not to abuse and profane the name of God, but neither are we by silence or connivance to be partakers of these horrible sins in others. The great 19th century theologian R.J. Breckinridge wrote, We prefer that evil should be resisted in the beginning, and so put down at once, without commotion or bloodshed. We pray to God and we labor earnestly that the Protestants may see in time where things are tending and not permit them to run on till in mere self-defense they will be obliged to take arms in their hands and put down by force what can easily now be extirpated by moral means. There's a lot of talk these days about the right and morality of owning firearms. Here's the reason why knowledgeable Christians want to keep their weapons, and it's the same reason why our Puritan forefathers took their guns to church. There are people out there that want to kill you just because you're a Christian. Even a dog will growl if you kick it enough. I can feel everyone's blood pressure go up when I say that. I can almost audibly hear the increase in heart rate, and so I'm going to address this head on. When someone says something awful to me, slanders me, and I mean me personally, I am called by God's law to bear this patiently, to turn the other cheek and let God worry about avenging me. That doesn't mean that I must turn the other cheek when the person's attack goes beyond me, Personally, if you attack me personally, I must bear it patiently. But if you attack my wife and children, then you should beware. I sin against God by letting someone harm them when it is in my power to prevent it. Letting them be harmed is not the same as turning the other cheek, it is giving their cheek to the smiter. Now, extend that out a couple of steps, and I think you will see what I have been trying to say. This community is an extension of our families, and for most of people in this town, that's far more literal than figurative. And therefore, your alliance must be to your community as an extension of your family. And if someone intends to harm the community, be it by hurtful public policies, wicked philosophies of education, usurious loans, or promotion of degeneracy At any level, this is not the time to turn the other cheek. This is the time that he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Those are the very words of Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray.